Rick Madison here with Rob Kars. And, and, and Rob is one of those guys that, you know, at every time I get to spend time with Rob, I find out he paddleboards, he mountain bikes. And just the other day, I found out he did something extraordinary, which was, yeah, Rick, I, I used to race a little bit. And it, sorry, Rob, what was that? You raced? Yeah, just sled dogs or whatever. I'm like, okay, hold on, back up. The Iditarod, you did the Iditarod? He's like, yeah, a few times. So so Rob, just for fun, tell us what the Iditarod means. What? How long is that? Well, the you know the history of it goes back to the mid twenties to a, a diphtheria epidemic that was occurring on the coast in a town called Nome, which was a gold mining community uh, way out on the northwest coast of Alaska, and they had no way of getting the uh, the serum, the diphtheria serum, out of Fairbanks out there. Planes, plane, commercial planes weren't really able to go in the middle of winter. So they actually used the old mail trails, uh, like the, the postal trails, where the people would take sleds, load them up with the mail, and take it out to the communities on the river on these trails. So they used this, this they created this serum run and used all the local drivers to take the serum out to Nome. And it was amazing. And it created, um, after that, they, they took the trail, the Iditarod Trail, and it went through a town called Iditarod, that's where the name came from, and made a national historic trail in the United States. So how far is this, and how many people usually take part? It's, it's around 1,000 miles, uh, give or take. Some years, you know, plus or minus 100 miles, depending on how they route the course. There's a northern route and a southern route. And on average, there's about 50 to 60 people per year that, that do it. And I'd say the majority of them are Alaskans, live in, live in the state. And it seems to be like a, a national treasure, like as far as people that do, do a lot of spectators show up at these events, or is this more of a, you know, you're, you're with a team of dogs, of yeah. course, but is this a spectator sport? I don't even know. You know, at, at the beginning it is, at the start and the restart, and along the trail for the first, well, probably 100 miles, people come out with their snow machines, they'll fly out in their small planes. After that, once you hit the interior over the Alaska range, it's pretty quiet. You know, you have the checkpoints you go into and out of, and you go through a number of uh, Athapaskan uh, native villages, and the people are just incredible. The hospitality is amazing, but it's a really great way to connect from the coast at Anchorage through the interior, and, and it's just a bit of a lifeline for the people, and it's, it's sort of like the Super Bowl for them. It's, it's a very, they're very proud of their in-state event. So you have... Um... How many times did you do the Iditarod? I attempted it three times. Attempted? Mm -hmm. So tell me more. Well, yeah, there's no guarantee. You know, you could put all the effort in and all the work. And, you know, sometimes you have to take a knee and step out. And so I, I ran it three times, uh, 96, 1998, and uh, 2001. And I finished once. Really? Yeah, it's, it's, it's grueling. One year... We basically got taken off the trail. We got attacked by a moose. And uh, fortunately, none of the dogs were injured. And I was pretty rattled, but it, uh, it, it was enough to take me out. It was time. And then the, the second time, we, we got bad weather. We had a really, really, really rough trail conditions. Uh, I had some dogs that came down with injuries, just like, like stretched, you know, 
uh, ligaments and sore sore arms, so I wouldn't push the team. So we actually withdrew in a uh, place called Nikolai, which is a village in the interior. So when you, um, and, and for someone who I think is as driven as you are, does that eat away at you at all to, to kind of say, because at, at some point it's probably not in the best interest of the dogs either. Yeah. You know, you, you have to, it does very much so. And I, I don't think I ever lost sleep over it, but it, it bothered me for years because I wanted to do it. And then I realized that my ego was way less important than the health of the dogs. And you have to, like I say, take a knee and step out. And, you know, I, I just love the dogs so much. I would never, ever push them into a bad situation. Um, so yeah, you, you know, it's tough, but as I've grown and matured, I, I think you, you realize that sometimes it really is just the experience that matters and you don't always have to finish. As somebody who's uh, uber competitive, and I'm 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 working through that, Rob. I really am. <laughs> um, but it's funny how I went uh, um, heli heli snowboarding, I guess. And uh, you know, I, I couldn't fun. do it. Wow. I couldn't do it. Mm. Like I literally, the snow was so deep, and I was submarining so much, I just couldn't do it. So I had to take a had to take a knee. And humility is is wonderful for the soul, but. Uh, I appreciate the pain of not finishing. Oh yeah, you you come home uh, with your tail between your legs, but you've tried. Uh, it was more important to bring myself and the and the team home healthy. Mm-hmm. That was way more important than anything else. And because we had gone and were fortunate enough to finish on the first first attempt, so I had I had you know made that achievement and was happy to do it and. Not sure why we, you know, what the achievement was for or who it was for. That was a learning in itself. But, but yeah, we'd been there, sort of done that, and we're very satisfied. Tell me a bit about, you know, racing at the Iditarod. You have a sled dog makeup chemistry, and I know that, you know, um, really good handlers get to know their advantages, disadvantages with certain dogs, strengths, weaknesses, whatever you want to call them. Did you seem to... You discover that over the years, I would imagine, working so closely with the dogs. Oh, yeah. They're they're just such amazing athletes, such amazing and such unique personalities. They are, they're working dogs through and through and, and love to please. And you have to make sure as the coach and mentor that you don't take advantage of that. You need to pace them. You need to keep them fed, healthy, so that they want to go and, and, and keep going. Um, there are people, there have been issues in the past. Some people have pushed too hard and it's wrong. And the dogs don't deserve that. They, they are athletes to be treasured. And, you know, when we did not sell the dogs at the end, we retired them all out and let them live their lives out on our, on our property that we had. And they were just, they were just our friends. They were part of the family. That would be one of the most protected properties in the history of Canada, I would say, with a bunch of... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're such loving animals, too. People think they're, they're ravenous, barking, biting. They're just the calmest, nicest, well-mannered animals. And they're, they're performance athletes. There's no doubt about it. So it seems to me that... Um, the intuitiveness. So the after a while, the the dogs start to learn exactly what you want, as well as what what they know they should do. So, and I'm not saying that you still have to handle them, but do they sometimes just know automatically what to do? Yeah, good good sled dogs are born and not made, and we are very fortunate to work with with some folks, um, some real big names in the sport, 
that I used to, I, I apprenticed with a guy out of Montana and his name was Doug Swingley and Doug has actually gone on and won the Iditarod four times. So he's a good friend. And we sourced some of our best dogs from him as well as a fellow named Rick Swenson up in Alaska who's won the race five times. So if you start with really good dogs and look after them, um, they can do far more than I could ever train into them. They are, they are just the best the best are bred to the best and they turn into just amazing animals. They can anticipate what you want sometimes before you can give them the direction. So you have a, this, we're, we're going to get into a lot of the other stuff that you've done and you've done quite a bit. I, <laughs> and I'm excited to jump into that, but, but let's talk a bit about uh, the central Okanagan food bank, which is where I, I met you. Was this something that, uh, that pulled you and your wife towards it was a, uh, it seems to be for anyone who's volunteered as much as you and Jane have, it's got to be a passion. Oh yeah. And, and you know, it becomes part of who you are to give back a bit. We we've have worked hard and been very fortunate and really feel honored to be able to give back through the central Okanagan food bank. Prior to that, after we kind of tapered off the sled dogs and we're, we're wrapping up that part of it. We used to work with the Cock and Humane Society, and we had dozens of dogs that we fostered at our place and loved them all. Jane, Jane and I just loved them to bits. So volunteering is just sort of natural. When we moved out to the Okanagan, we were looking around for things to do. And unfortunately, when COVID hit, uh, the local food bank started running out of... Um, some of the volunteers were quite afraid to come in, and rightfully so. So we actually signed up and started helping out. So I'm in my third year there. Unbelievable organization, really connected into the community. Um, so impressed with them. And they're so appreciative of any volunteer help that they get. Really well-run organization. And would you say, like, if you were to pitch this to someone else that to for volunteering, especially people that, you know, they've, they've retired maybe and they're thinking of giving, what pitch would you give to them to say, this is something you need to take a look at? Oh yeah. It's, it, you know, it's a way of connecting with the community. It's a way of giving back. It, it, it actually is very satisfying to go in and try to sort of help with the food security issue that some, some of the people in town are facing. And, you know, it, I think food prices are rising. It's getting more difficult for people. I think the food bank is stepping up and with good partnerships locally and providing a lot of the, the protein and nutrition for people that need it. And it's very satisfying to see that. People are incredibly respectful. Uh, the clientele are amazing. They're all so appreciative of, of everything that, that the food bank has done. So, you know, it's a continuum from the people that donate and the volunteers helping the staff at the food bank. There's so many opportunities and it's not all physical work. There is some if you want it, but a lot of it is just working with other people and, and putting hampers together and getting things ready for the people that really need the help. So we're just chatting about the food bank and, and Rob, you know, you and your wife Jane have done a phenomenal job. I, I know how regularly you volunteer, but can you give me just a little bit of perspective? I've heard the name numerous times through the food bank, but Helen's Acres. And, and there seems to be a connection there. And, and I know, um, I, I mean, the Central Okanagan Food Bank would really be without if, if uh, there wasn't a connection and partnership with Helen's Acres. Do you want to just elaborate on that? Because, you know, you've, you see the amount of food that comes through the doors. Is it a lot? Like, Well, you know, to put it in perspective, I'm, I'm certainly not, you know, 
uh, designated spokesperson for the food bank. There's people that are far better doing that than I am. So I work on the floor and I just see the stuff come in and go out and help process it. But Helen's Acres has, in the time I've been there, has been an amazing partner with the food bank. Look, it's a great relationship that's in place. They grow an incredible amount of food on some dedicated acreage here in town that, that comes to the food bank and really helps fill a, fill a gap. And it's just such a nice, nice opportunity to have a strong relationship with a local organization. And again, others can speak to it far better than I can, but I know they're such an important part of the food bank family. It's interesting because one year I, I got to write about some of the clients that uh, the food bank helps out through the uh, Be an Angel campaign. And a lot of them talked about the vegetables, the 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 great produce that comes from Helen Acres. It's fresh. You know, it's it feels like they're feeding their children and their families just a, a better type of food. And and I was really touched by, you know, this uh, this great story. So if. If anyone ever wants to do some digging around uh, Helen's Acres, I'm sure they'll be amazed that such a resource exists here in, in central Okanagan. It's fabulous. And, you know, it's it's just a short distance from their plot, their land here in town, right over to the food bank. So you don't have a bunch of transportation costs. It's, it's just great. It's a nice local um, operation that does a great job and works with the food bank so well. You did a few different things um, over the course of your career, seems like, you know, call them what you will, side hustle, whenever. Um, just talk a bit about some of that past and, and, and some of the things that you did. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think we were doing the side hustle, the gig economy, before it became sort of popular or prevalent or known as that. And, you know, what people are doing these days, doing multiple things to help drive revenue to, to survive and live their lives. We, we did it out of necessity. We had hobbies and things we were, you know, really passionate about, but didn't have the cash flow to, to make happen. So we created companies. We basically did a lot of physical work to bring in, um, created a dog food import company from company out of the States, a, a producer out of the States, and created a distribution network through Alberta and BC and used that to help fund our, fund our passion. So, you know, what you get in, you get out. What's interesting, though, is is you kind of took the attitude of, hey, we need more money, so let's go make some more. Yeah, we. I'm dead adverse. I, I hate going to the bank. And at that point in my life, we really didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, financial security. So it was sweat equity that, that, uh, that you had to rely on and ingenuity. And we did that. And it kind of trickled on through the years. We started and had small consulting companies, created another company that we used to build um, through SharePoint, used to build websites for oil and gas companies for their health, safety, environment documentation. Oh gosh, we've tried a few things. Some we win at, some you lose at, some you break even, but it's all great experience. So you you did all of these, um, you know, side hustles. You sold, uh, was it just dog food or pet food? It was dog food. Dog we food. focused on high-end dog food. And and through that all, uh, your wife and you managed to stay together for 33 years. And and it seems to me like that is, uh, you, you kind of stuck through it, through the whole thing. And and just talk a bit about, I guess, the stick-to-itness uh, that, that I think you guys display. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's been a great great marriage being a long time and just surprising how fast the years tick off but you know I think I think respect's been one of the big things 
that's kept us together. And the fact that we run it as a partnership, we truly are partners. We've had our good days, our bad days. You know, Jane's been really supportive of the silly stuff I've done over the years. And I think part of the success is I spent a lot of time away from home during work over my career. So Jane had a chance to preserve her sanity while I was gone. So, you know, good for her. She's a very tolerant person and has been so supportive. And in return, I, I try to be supportive of her. Okay, so Rob, in your words, you said you did some silly stuff. And of course, you know, we're, we're talking about some uh, just some diverse passions you've had over the years. But she has one that is uh, taken off a bit in, in Kelowna here. Just explain a bit about, I know you play a support role, but uh, tell me a bit about what you've seen. Wow, yeah, well, <laughs> we can never sit still. There's always something seems to be going on. So once we retired, um, much to my surprise, Jane developed a passion for doing pottery and started here locally with one of the studios in town and really started enjoying it. And this was several years ago when we moved here. Uh, she joined a studio down south in Palm Springs area and would also be down there in the winter when we spend time down there. And um, this past year, she and three three partners of hers decided that it was time to expand the pottery presence in Kelowna. And they went together, and this is during the middle of COVID, and put together and funded a brand new pottery studio here in town. And it's been a great little community they've built it's you know almost fully subscribed they've just done an amazing job and you know what it created an outlet for people a lot of people come in some of them are quite stressed out from work and some of them are in the healthcare mm -hmm. industry and have have found that the pottery is very soothing and just good therapy so have you do you find it immersive as well as somebody who's coming into it a bit uninitiated i guess but do you find it that immersive that transformative where you're you're focused in and you kind of lose everything in in the moment? Well, you know, going back, my only experience doing clay was with Play-Doh in like <laughs> elementary school, you know, a million years ago. So last year, once the studio opened, I actually started playing around and Jane taught me and her partners taught me and I love it. It is, it is something that I just have so much fun with. I don't claim to be good at it, but it is such a interesting thing to do, lots to learn. And it is immersive and time just flies by and it is incredibly soothing. I wish I'd, I'd done this when I was in high stress uh, jobs in the right. past. It would have been a really good sort of therapy. And, and okay, so let's soften that a bit. Your spouse taught you something. So you're actually coachable and trainable and all that kind of stuff because some spouses can't. <laughs> Well, you know, after 33 years, she's incredibly patient too. So, and she, and she, you know, we know what buttons to push, but she's, she's so passionate about it that when she teaches her passion comes through and it goes with the other instructors and founders there too. They're all just really passionate people and they've come together with, you know, like-mindedness and have a great, great product to deliver. And, and, you know, people sense it. They come in, they know the people there are actually having fun and enjoying it. It isn't just a for-profit thing. This is a create a community. What's the name of it? It's called Clayline Pottery and it's downtown on Lawrence Avenue. I want to talk a bit about you and Jane had the ability. I know you've got roots in Kelowna, but why, why Kelowna? Because again, I, I think you have the, the wherewithal to, to live wherever you wanted to, but you chose this community and why, why did it resonate with you and Jane? Yeah, you know, there's a couple things, Rick. I mean, I've been lucky enough to live and work around the around the globe. Had in a lot of places that 
I really didn't want to go back to and a bunch that I would love to go back to. But after living in those places and working there, you realize what a great country we actually have here. And I actually spent some time as a kid. I grew up, did all my junior high and high school up in Vernon. So love the valley. I've always loved it. Love the skiing, love the recreation. So when we were when we retired a few years back, decided this is a place we had always had on our radar. Great location, great people, the the wine industry. I mean, it's just fabulous living here, the walkability where we bought a place where we have good walkability. So we love it. The climate's great. You don't get out of the 40 below in the prairies and it's just a wonderful place to have settled in. And and it seems to me that you and Jane have a variety of activities you do. Just let me go through a few here. I think I think I know. Uh, mountain biking, paddle boarding, mm-hmm. kayaks too? Long time ago, sea kayaking. Okay. Um, hiking, probably. Yes. And any you probably do a bunch more oh you know there's an incredibly vibrant pickleball community here in town and i'm lucky enough to be involved in that and i'm actually one of the uh, i help out on one of the men's day leagues as the kind of coordinator league host so i've got a very well organized group and it's it's amazing what a large community there is here in town and talented pickleball players too fastest growing sport in north america yeah it's it's booming here in Kelowna. although we we got to change the name. <laughs> okay, so whenever I have a petroleum geologist sitting next to me, I always, I get excited. So um, how many places have you worked as a petroleum geologist, Rob? Oh, boy. That's, um, that's, it could take a while. Short version is largely always based sort of in the Calgary area. I mean, I, I cut my teeth as working on the drilling rigs as a kid and put myself through school doing that. Um, been lucky enough to work up in Alaska in the offshore, spent three winters up in uh, offshore in Nuvik out on the Mackenzie Delta on a big program up there. Uh, spent some time down in Houston on the offshore, uh, worked in Colombia, Argentina, Ecuador, uh, France, and the Netherlands had assets in Yemen and Chad with one company. I lived in Australia twice for two different projects. And in the last six years of my career uh, was spent in uh, Albania and I lived there the last year permanently. We should chat more about, a bit about that, but I, I want to dive into uh, Canada seems to be rich with resources, but sometimes we forget about that or we're embarrassed <laughs> by it. Um, how, how do you think, and again, I'm putting you on the spot here, but how do you think the current federal government uh, has been in, in regards to the energy? Like, what do you gather as far as their attitude towards the uh, specifically oil and gas energy sector? Well, this one could get me into trouble, but I'm, I'm really finding they're pushing their way in and trying to exert control on an industry that they don't understand. Uh, they've greatly benefited from in this country and seem to be prepared to kind of toss it to the wayside in, to advance their own green agenda. Whereas I take a little more pragmatic view and think we've got this amazing resource. We're developing it intelligently and environmentally in a strong way. We, we've got good controls and good environment. It's it's some of the best, cleanest production you can get. And I think we should use it as leverage to help us transition into a hydrocarbon-free economy. I don't know if we'll ever get there, and it's a long road, 
but why why give away the resource you've actually got? Why is uh, I, I guess part of me just continues to ask why does it seem like uh, a lot of Canadians maybe are pushed towards thinking there's a there's a taint on our oil and gas? Um, you've been you've seen it come out of the ground. You've seen how how it's it's created. And, and I think, and again, I'm just guessing here, but it seems like we have some, some very tight regulations around sourcing it. Is that true? Like Canada versus some of the other places you've worked, because you would have a, a very bird's eye view of how it's sourced and is, are Canadians doing the right things? Well, I personally believe, I definitely have my own opinion on it, but my experience is that very much so. In fact, people really don't probably realize that so many other countries and jurisdictions in the world have actually come over into Alberta and have spent time with the regulator to look at their regulatory framework to try to take something and apply it in their own jurisdiction to help properly, you know, set up royalty structures, set up government energy policy properly to 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 emulate what we have in Canada. And I think some people through through the, through the press and and through just lack of perhaps understanding are ready to, to throw it under the bus. And, you know, the oil industry is not without its problems. There certainly have been issues in the past and will likely be in the future. But I think the, the regulatory framework is strong. Practices are good. I think people could do a lot more education on the heavy oil to understand it a little more of what really happens up there. I've worked up there. I've prospected. I've drilled. I've developed up the air. I know the area fairly well. So people are entitled to their opinion, but... I think there needs to be a little more critical thinking on this across the country. So, Rob, in, in your eyes, are we, is Canada one of those countries where, you know, you, you've said it before, we have a lot of things to be to be grateful for. And, and again, you know, I, I sometimes fall into um, feeling like we have a bit more warts than a lot of other countries. But you've, you've traveled enough that we're actually not not that bad. Like you've settled here. Um, we have a lot going for us, including an energy-rich country. Um, is there, let's just say we're, we're waving a wand here. We've elected Rob as our new prime minister. Oh boy, I don't <laughs> want to do that. What, what things would you, would you look at from a, from a national standpoint just moving forward? And again, we're just, we're just having some fun here. But you talking what, on energy policy? Energy policy yeah. as, a, as a petroleum geologist, specifically i think you have to look at what you have in your in your quiver or your golf bag so to speak and see what strengths you've got what resources you've got and develop and manage them in an environmentally and intelligent way and not overdo it but you you know you have to fill a demand that's in the country we have the ability to you know fill gas tanks now and keep keep the country moving we use a lot of motive fuels in this country, and you know, I don't know how that's ever going to replace, be replaced. Again, I think to go back and say it at a federal level, let the industry work, let the marketplace work, and use the resources we've got. So on, on the Rick and Friends show, what we try to do is is, is stay uber focused on on local, um, and and one of the things Rob is is someone who's traveled quite a bit. How is Kelowna doing? And, and as we roll towards a municipal election, 
Is there any issues that you think should be addressed uh, by the the incoming council? If you know, I'm not saying the incumbents wouldn't get reelected, but is there anything that you think are are just burgeoning issues that we need to address in in a community you clearly love? Oh yeah, it's it's a great community. I mean, there's always going to be problems and and issues, but overall, it's still a great place to live. Um, I, I think I think the real one of the biggest problems or challenges here is that you know the valley's growing, Kelowna's growing rapidly. I'm not convinced the infrastructure to support that growth is there or necessarily planned. I think they're trying. They've got that 1.6 billion dollar 10-year plan that they're just playing with. That's fantastic. I think the infrastructure, if you can't move the people that are coming to your community, you really have to question some of that growth. You know, there's just some strain on some of the local roads. I'm just struggling with that. And I don't think you can tell the community to go hop on those little electric scooters and that's going to solve the problem. I think the problem's much bigger than that. And I think the the other thing that it's a personal gripe with me is I am fairly pro-development. I, I see no issue with growth as long as the infrastructure keeps pace. And as long as you increase you know, your fire protection and your police protection proportionately, what I have to admit I get troubled by is when somebody pulls a development permit, here's your plan, here's what's approved, and the thing hasn't even broken ground and they're already coming in for amendments against it. If you don't know what you've got, quit doing the variances. There, that doesn't make sense to me. And I think it just seems too easy for these massive changes on some of these bigger developments to occur that I think they need to follow the area plans and the height restrictions and quit giving some of these variances. You know, it's a lot of fun when when I get to, you know, engage with an individual that obviously uh, you're, you're very forthright. You're very, you know, you, you speak your mind. Um, and, and I think that's refreshing in, in today's world where it seems like we, we often put a lot of filters for fear. Um, our words offend and, and then we end up, you know, not really moving anything forward. But, but what I've found in, in uh, spending any time with you, Rob, is, you know, you have reasons. You have, you have thoughts and reasons and, and beliefs behind everything that you think about and, and you say. And when you talk about a community like Kelowna, growing as rapidly as it is and maybe and when you spoke about not perhaps spending the money on infrastructure which is tough um are these some of the things that you know when when leaders lead they they push these things forward because you know when you look across the world a lot of communities got that got into this like i think we're in a pivotal time and unless we address these things, they're just going to start bottlenecking, and and we're really going to have uh, a, a bit of a mess on our hands. What? So are we? Are we thinking just? I don't know. Light rail? Are we thinking transportation? Are we thinking uh, just different roadway? Like, what are your thoughts around that infrastructure? Wow, you know, don't know, but I'll, I'll tell you. One of the changes we've made is we bought a couple e mountain bikes a few years ago. And that's actually amazing mobility. And one thing I love about Kelowna are the bike path systems and the fact that the city's actually listened to the people as extending that Abbott corridor again. Really kudos to them for doing this and for opening up some of the new beaches and getting that stuff going. But again, I don't think you can put everybody on bikes 20, you know, 12 months of the year or electric scooters aren't going to solve the problem. So I still think transportation is going to be with us 
do, is it busing? Are people going to take buses? I don't know. I, I'm not. I'd rather ride my bike personally, but you have to create opportunities for everyone. I really don't know what the answer is. I, I know having grown up in Vernon and, you know, have my roots back in the 70s, I'm just shocked at the amount of traffic that comes through this valley and up the highway. You know, you, you do wonder, is a second crossing needed or is it more likely they need to do a bypass that's been talked about for years? I don't know. I, I don't know, but it feels like it's coming to a head. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, and, and, and it seems like when, uh, you know, obviously we have some some major impediments to just uh, throwing down some roads because, you know, we have mountains and lakes and those, those sorts of things that are a little bit tougher to manage because people often come from Alberta and say, just put a ring road in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but, not that easy. <laughs> not that easy. Yeah. But it is interesting that uh, you speak about, you know, moving people around because I, I do think as, as these towers continue to grow, and you've seen it uh, as someone who who lives in an area that's, you know, you're very close to downtown. It, it is, you know, you see the traffic, you mm -hmm. see how much it builds and it does become a larger issue. And I think, um, you know, in the next five years, I don't know what the population stats are, but I imagine we're, we're heading into an area where it, it, it's, it's going to stop being just a minor inconvenience. It's probably going to be a problem. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if we're kind of already on the cusp of that and, so many people in migration here, and, and you can't stop people from coming, right? But they've got to have places to come to, and it starts stressing, you know, the housing side, and people can't get affordable housing. It makes it tough. So I think, you know, honestly, you can't have the growth and development without the supporting infrastructure. And I'm a believer in you kind of build it, and they will come, as opposed to wait and build it after the fact. And that's the wrong time to anticipate it. You might get it right, but it's a little late. Man, it's been a it's been a hoot. Rob Cars has been with us and uh, heard a lot of wonderful things. I want to get you back on the big show because uh, it's just been enjoyable getting to know you a little bit more. I know we've spent some time, but man, it's uh, I didn't realize all the things that I'm sure we haven't covered everything. So I uh, want to get you back on uh, Rick and Friends sometime pretty soon. That sounds good, Rick. Hey, it's been wonderful. Thank you very much for the opportunity.